All right, let's uh, remain standing and recite our verse for the month for the final time. Hopefully, now we have it down. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. John 6, 29. You may be seated. Um, the new verses for August are in the back. Make sure you grab uh, one of those before you head out today. Okay, uh, how many Harry Potter fans do we have today? Harry Potter fans, okay. Not that many. It's all right. Um, my wife is in the nursery, so she can't raise her hand, but she's a huge Harry Potter fan, and she's the one that has gotten our family kind of into it. She read all the books growing up, watched all the movies, um, had the idea for us to go and visit the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando. And I wouldn't say that we're fanatics uh, by any means, but between the two of us, we've done all of the things that most Harry Potter fans do. Read the books, watch the movies, visit Harry Potter World multiple times, take the online quizzes and find out your house and your Patronus, all those things. Uh, just for those of you who know anything about Harry Potter, can anyone guess what house I would be in? Yes. Slytherin, that's right. Your pastor is a malicious, sneaky, manipulative rule breaker. Aren't you fortunate? <laughs> uh, don't ask me what my Patronus is because that's embarrassing. Um, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, in the story, each wizard has this sort of animal spirit that they can cast to protect themselves against a dark enemy. And whatever animal that is, is apparently connected somehow to your personality. So you can take an online quiz and find out what that animal is. Um, I was at work one day several years ago, and my friend Hannah did this. And she fills out the questionnaire, and on the computer screen you see this like ethereal, foggy forest as it searches for your animal. And hers loads slowly, and it pops up, and it's a wolf. And we're both like... That is cool. Your Patronus is a wolf. And so I'm like, all right, I got to go home and, and do my, my quiz with Allison. So uh, I go home and I tell her, she's like, all right, let's do the quizzes. Let's see, let's see what we get. And obviously we have high hopes for what we're going to get, right? Like I'm hoping for like a Komodo dragon or a Gila monster or a King Cobra being in Slytherin, something, something boss. And Allison is hoping for like, a unicorn, or a peacock, or something totally majestic. So, Allison takes her quiz first, and it's loading, and the tension is rising, and hers pops up, and it says, your Patronus is a squirrel. <laughs> and so I did what any good husband would do in that moment, and I start laughing. I'm like, ha! That is hilarious. You got a squirrel? Like, what is that supposed to protect you from? An army of walnuts? That's pathetic. Now, the obvious lesson here is that I should have kept my mouth shut um, because this, this website that, that does this is supposed to run on some kind of algorithm, right? A, a personality test algorithm. But I'm pretty sure that when I took my test, it wasn't an algorithm. I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit intervened. Uh, God was like, we need to continue to humble this man because he is not finished yet. So, I grabbed the laptop, still giggling, and I fill out the questionnaire myself. And let me emphasize here that this questionnaire is like five questions, okay? It is 
I have very little trust that you can get a real handle on somebody's personality with just five questions, all right? Like, I, I think, personally, this should have been like a 90-part survey. Then you can really understand who I am. I would have done that happily. Instead, I fill out five stupid questions thinking that this thing now knows me. So it's loading. And the foggy forest is like exploring. And I'm ready to see an absolute predator. And finally, after what seemed like an eternity, it pops up and it says, your Patronus is a field mouse. And I'm like, what? How is this even an option? Like, why would you put this as one of the choices that a person could possibly have? Now my wife is laughing because even though she got a squirrel, I got a field mouse. And the person who wrote this program could have put any animal in there and they thought to themselves, someone is going to get humbled when they get field mouse as their Patronus. J.K. Rowling chose violence, you guys. This was difficult. And you can't redo the quiz, okay? It knows your IP address. So, for the rest of my life, I am a Slytherin, which is symbolized by a snake, and a field mouse. Figure that one out. Now, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you will be familiar with one of the common enemies in the series, and that is the Dementor. The Dementors are these flying ghost-like wraiths. They're, they're dressed in all black, and they look a lot like the Grim Reaper. Black flowing hood, skeleton hands, can't see their faces. They are evil spirits. And they end up working in the book with he who must not be named, but really they have no master. They have no home, no allegiance, and they have no future other than to just continue to feed. And what they feed on is happiness. Their signature move is called the Dementor's Kiss. And basically, that involves getting close enough to a person and sucking out their soul. Specifically, su sucking out of their happiness and joy. Leaving their victims still alive, but an empty shell of a person. They exist, living and breathing, but empty of all that makes them human. So powerful are the Dementors that a person would become depressed just being in their presence, just being near them. It was considered in the books that being a victim of a Dementor is worse than death because even though a victim would still be alive, they would be permanently empty of real life. One character, Professor Lupin, said this, that Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Get too near a Dementor and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You will be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life, and you'll be just an empty shell that lost its soul. Sound fun, don't they? Dementors use their ability to rob a person of their vitality, of their sense of self, their happiness and joy. And in the books, the defense against a Dementor is a Patronus. So a wizard conjures up that animal spirit, 
which in my case is a field mouse, so I would definitely die if I was in the Harry Potter series. And their Patronus stands in between them and the Dementor and drives it away. And so Professor Lupin said that the Patronus is a guardian that acts as a shield between you and the Dementor. The Patronus is a kind of positive force, a projection of the very thing the Dementor feeds upon. Hope, happiness, the desire to survive, but it cannot feel despair as real humans can. So the Dementors can't hurt it. So we have Dementors, which rob a person's joy, feeds on their soul. And a Patronus, which is a projection of hope and happiness itself, which drives the Dementors away. This week is our second to last week in the book of Ephesians and our series, Worthful. And in this series, we've been examining what Paul has to teach us about our identity in Christ and what that identity should mean for our sense of self-worth. So far, we've learned that our worth is not merit-based. We, we don't earn it. Rather, it is given to us by the God who loved us enough to spend 10,000 years creating us. He created every part of us, every facet of our being, and our future, and how exactly it was supposed to be. He prepared good works in advance for us to do. He gives us identity and meaning and purpose and future. He takes away the shame of our sin and gives us a vital role to play in the story of redemption. And today what we're going to see is that part of that mission is this, that we are called to be forces of life, projecting the hope of the gospel, showing people their worth in Jesus. We get to show other people how much they matter. We get to show people how to find their ultimate worth in Jesus. But too often we function as dementors, consuming people by feeding on their worthfulness. Instead of building others up, we tear them down in order to make ourselves feel better, to advance beyond them somehow, or to exercise power over them. We use other people. Paul is going to show us how to use our power to fill in relationships with others, them with the love of Jesus, rather than using our power to feed off of them. So, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of obedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to the church the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I forgot to put this on the screen, but I'm also including the first two sections of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality in him. Now, I don't need to tell you that this is one of the most hotly contested chapters in all of the Bible. This section contains verses that send our modern alarm bells ringing like crazy, spurring one controversy after another and making people angrily scream, Paul is sexist. Paul is a misogynist. Paul is pro-slavery. Here it is. And though it won't be the central purpose of today's sermon to prove why those statements are false, hopefully... What you learn today will help you understand why they are. Most people, when they're looking at this passage, see Paul addressing every area of a person's life. Marriage, 
parenting, work, and society. And that's true. But we need to make it a bit more specific. Paul, you may notice, is addressing areas of power. He's speaking into all of the areas in his culture in which one person or group of people had power over another person or group of people. In this society, husbands had power over their wives. Parents had power over their children. Masters had power over their bondservants. In verse 3, he talks about sexual immorality. And this is because in his day, in immoral sexual relationships, one partner had power over the other. Typically, that was males and females, but sometimes it was just a matter of social hierarchy. That can manifest in any flavor of sexual relationship. Then in verse 18, he talks about drunkenness. Why? Because drunkenness gives alcohol power over you. So he's giving a bunch of different situations in which a person had the opportunity to wield their power over someone else or give up their power to someone or something else. So in one sense, Paul is giving a list of ways that people can be dementors. And remember what dementors do. They feed off of the joy in a person's soul. They suck the happiness out of a person in order to feed themselves. They leave people as empty shells without hope or peace and presumably without any real sense of self-worth. So here's what we need to understand. In every relationship that we have in our lives, and especially in the very close relationships, we have an opportunity to either be a dementor or a minister. A dementor or a patronus. We will either use others, consume others to feed our own sense of self, or we will be someone who gives life, who feeds the other person's sense of worthfulness. We will objectify people and tear them down in order to build ourselves up, or we will build up the God-given sense of worth that they have in various ways by serving them. Obviously, we're called to do the latter. So let's begin to break down this chapter. And the first thing that we have to do is set the stage for the whole chapter by reading the first two verses. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 once more. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as well... I'm sorry, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering of sacrifice to God. So, be imitators of God, walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. These two verses set the stage, they set the context for the entire chapter, straight up. You cannot read any of the, the, the following verses. You can't read any of the rest of the chapter without verses 1 and 2 in mind. Literally everything that's written in the rest of the chapter is based off of the attitude in verses 1 and 2. And so far too often what people do, and we're guilty of this as well at times, is they'll, they'll take these sections of a chapter by themselves and, and they'll do so without giving full bearing to the context in which they're found. And we'll be like, oh, Ephesians 5 has a section on wives and husbands. Ephesians 5 has, has a section on uh, parenting and, and a section on bond servants and masters. Let's go there. And not that there's anything wrong with that, 
But when we go to study those sections, we had better take the context of the entire chapter and letter to heart. Everything that Paul addresses about the relationships that we have with others and how we ought to conduct ourselves and what our attitude should be come from these two verses at the very beginning. In every area, no matter what relationship it is, we must have this mindset. I am to imitate God. I am to walk in Christ's love. I am to sacrifice myself for others. And I am to offer myself to God as a pleasing aroma. That's the attitude we have to have. Much too often, that is not how people approach their social connections. People often get married with the expectation that their spouse is going to make them happy. They base their romantic decisions solely on what benefits are derived from being with this other person. Parenting is often used as a mask for underlying pains in the parents. Parents often live vicariously through their children, or they idolize their children and place them on a pedestal. Doing so is a way of saying, my worthfulness is found in my children. And that mindset makes your children your source of joy, which makes them the food source of your soul, and you end up consuming them. Work is often seen just as simple as being clocking in and clocking out, and bosses and employees have this sort of symbiotic relationship of just getting what they need out of each other. And nowhere is the selfish mindset more evident than in immoral sexual relationships. Those relationships are built entirely upon the attitude that people are objects for one's own pleasure. So before he begins to talk about any of the specific relationships, Paul starts by saying, I need to lay the groundwork for everything that I'm about to say. In every area, love like Jesus. Be a sacrificial servant. Imitate me in the way that I love people. Now let's look at verses 8 through 11 once more. Verse 8 through 11, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Darkness and light. Paul is saying, once you were a dementor, you were darkness. Now you are light. You are a patronus. You used to be someone who used people to serve your own wants. But now you are someone who is pure light to people. You used to take advantage of people, now you serve them. Now you shine light on places where people are taking advantage, being taken advantage, advantage of. Now you advocate for what is good and right and true. Now you advocate for victims. Now you are a source of the light of Christ, which drives other people's dementors away. That is what you're called to be and do. Finally, look at verses 15 through 17. He says... Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
He says, make sure that you're examining the way that you live, the way that you operate, the way that you relate to others, how you are reflecting God's will. Make sure that you are viewing every interpersonal interaction that you have with other people as an opportunity to walk in wisdom. This, what he's describing, is a consistent attitude of purposeful ministering. Paul's saying, you don't know how much time you have. Whatever it is, it's not much. That time is flying by. So when he says, the days are evil, what he's saying is that like the rest of creation, even time itself is broken with sin. Unless it is purposely filled with kingdom work, it will, on its own, be filled with empty pursuits. Like, God told Adam to work the garden, right? And then when the curse happened, God told him, now when you work the garden, the garden is going to work against you. There's going to be thorns and thistles and weeds. In the same way, we are to fill the days with goodness, even as they are working against us to fill themselves with spiritual thorns and thistles and weeds. So, so Paul's telling us, we're not going to accidentally fill our time with good things. We're not going to accidentally walk wisely or do the will of the Lord. You have to be intentional about the ways that you fill your time. Otherwise, you will get to the end of the day and shake your head and be like, I feel like I was busy today, but did I accomplish anything? Ever been there? I'm there like every day, every day it seems like. I get to the end of the day, I'm like, what did I do today? It's crazy. So you have to intentionally approach every day with a servant's attitude, with a willful decision to fill other people's lives with light instead of darkness. So, with all that being said, if that is where we start, it's kind of hard to then say, next, Paul is going to tell us that men are to lord themselves over women. That wouldn't fit the context at all. It, it would be the opposite of everything that he is saying so far. So I have two points today, and with all the background info that we've just covered, I promise I won't go as long on each point, but it's important that we establish those things first. After laying the groundwork, Paul gives three specific social structures with instructions on how to use the balance of power to be a Patronus rather than a Dementor. He starts each section, there, there's a section for wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and masters. He starts each section in the same way, by addressing what would have been the weaker party in that culture. Wives, children, bond servants. He addresses them first. Then he addresses what would have been the more powerful party. Husbands, parents, masters. And in each of these structures, he tells both the weaker party and the stronger party to emulate Christ. Isn't that interesting? Christ is the model both for the weaker party and the stronger party. How can that be? Because Christ is part of the Trinity. He is one who both exercises power and also empties himself of it. He is both servant and savior. He is both leading and submitting. 
So Dementors can't get to Jesus because no matter what he's doing, he's putting out way too much light. So let's talk about how, regardless of where we fit, we might emulate Jesus. Here's point number one. Power must be used to sow worthfulness in others, not consume it. Power must be used to sow worthfulness in others, not to consume it. So I'm actually going backwards here because Paul addressed the weaker party first, but I'm going to address the stronger party first because I think it will help us as 21st century Western thinkers. How many times have you seen someone reference a gotcha verse? Attempting to show why Christianity or the Bible is just so terrible. Gotcha! Here's the verse. And you think to yourself, you know, this thing that you're bringing up would be answered if you just kept reading. So often someone would be like, here's a gotcha! Here's the verse! And you're like, did, did you read the rest of what's around there? Because everything you're saying would be answered if you read the rest, right? This is one of those places. People read something that seems very controversial. For example, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Right? Like you read this in the 21st century and people are like, what did you say? I, I distinctly remember one time I was doing premarital counseling with a couple. They came and sat down in my office and um, the young lady looked at me and she was like, you're not going to talk about Ephesians 5, are you? The submission stuff doesn't sit well with me. And I was like, so let's start with Ephesians 5. <laughs> We're going to go straight there. I'm like, because more than likely you have an an improper understanding of that passage. After reading those verses, the conclusion seems clear, right? Paul is a sexist. So, the reason why I want to start by addressing the stronger party is to prevent that reaction. So the first thing we need to understand is that Paul is speaking into an ancient culture that absolutely was sexist. He's speaking into a culture that absolutely was misogynistic. It was patriarchal. It was sexist. It was racist. It was classist. And many other ists. The, the people that Paul is addressing have been raised to think this way in the Greco-Roman world. And so we have to understand that what Paul is going to say to them in Ephesians would have been radically countercultural. I've said so many times that we need to read the Bible as an ancient document. We need to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the ancient author and audience and read this stuff as they would have read it. And guys, let me be very clear with you. When this letter was read in the Ephesian churches in, in, in the, the day that it was written, the reaction would not have been the same as it is usually today. 
Today, without any understanding of that cultural context, people read Ephesians 5 and they cross their arms and they're like, excuse me, Paul is sexist. But that would not have been the reaction in the Ephesian churches at all. The Ephesian men would have heard this chapter with their jaws open and their eyes wide, like, you, you want me to do what? And the women in the Ephesian churches would have been going, Amen! Yes! Paul! Christianity is for the ladies! Let's go! Preach, dude! Why do I say that? Here's why I say that. Paul is looking right at men who would have been accustomed to treating their wives like property. And what he says to them is this. He says, You are to give yourself up for your wife. You are to lay your life down for her. You are to sacrifice yourself for her. You are to give her the white glove treatment, doing whatever is possible to treat her with purity and honor and respect. You see things that she needs, things that she's missing. You are to be the one to give her those things rather than telling her to do it herself. You are to treat her with honor. You see, you see a place where she feels she has a blemish? Well, then you are to do whatever is in your power to aid her in that area. You are to nourish her. You are to cherish her. You are to value her above your own family. He says, uh, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Yes, that's right. Men in a patriarchal society who view their fathers as more important and honored than anyone else. I'm telling you to leave your father and your mother and cleave to your wife. Your wife comes before the patriarch. You are to place her needs above your own, her desires above your own. Remember how Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Yeah, you're supposed to love your wife like that. You are to treat her like a treasured queen with all honor and respect and dignity. And the gentlemen in the Ephesian churches are sitting there and they're like, so we can't treat her like property? We can't divorce her just because you feel like it? We, we, we can't lord ourselves over them and treat them however we want? And Paul would have been like, see above. And like I said, the ladies in Ephesus would have been like, wait, wait, wait. this is how Christian men are supposed to treat their wives? Sign me up, okay? Can I have a Christian husband right now, please? Can I have a man who's going to love me like this? Yes, I want to be married to a Christian. This is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Nowhere else in society am I going to find something this good. So, so what Paul is getting at here is he's speaking into a culture in which husbands were given the freedom to be dementors toward their wives. They could just use their wives to serve their own needs. They could just suck the life out of them and leave them empty and cast them aside. 
And in direct opposition to that, he says, men, you are to use your power to fill her with light. You must use your power to sow worthfulness in them. How you treat them should be according to how worthful they are. If you treat her like a queen, she's going to feel like a queen. If you treat her like trash, she's going to feel like trash. You have the power to sow worthfulness so that she reaps worthfulness. Then he makes the same point to parents. Remember, in the culture that he's addressing, your children are literally your future. They're going to be the ones who provide for you later in life. They're going to be the ones to carry your legacy in your name. People in this culture who did not have kids were viewed as being cursed. The more kids you have, the more blessed by God you are. Navarros, you are very blessed by God. Far more blessed by God than what I'd like to be. <laughs> in this society, a woman's value was determined by how many kids and specifically how many sons she had. The family unit was the most important unit in all of society. So with that in mind, it's pretty easy to see how people could go overboard with their power over their kids. Parents could very easily be encouraged to be dementors who suck the lives out of their children by placing all of the pressure of the future of the family on their shoulders. Parents, and especially fathers, could very easily see their children not as people, but only in terms of what monetary and social value they would be bringing to the family. Kids became like dollar signs and social placeholders. So what would parents do? They'd be overbearing. They'd use their kids to prop themselves up. They would practically demand to be worshipped by them. So what does Paul tell the parents? He says, raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you know what the original meaning of the Greek word is here that we have that's translated, bring them up? The, the, the Greek word means to nurture to growth. There is an inherent tenderness that is implied. It is like the way that a mother tenderly cares for a baby, lovingly feeding it, taking care of its every need, teaching it as she goes. That is how we ought to use our power over our children, to nurture them, not to tear them down, to lovingly feed, not to tear down, not to demand respect as we simultaneously fail to respect them. We're not to just lord power over them just because we can Doing so, Paul says, will provoke that child to anger. It will make that child bitter. Our job as parents is to sow worthfulness in our children. To show them every single day how much they matter to Jesus. Parents, listen to me. That is the most important job we have in this life. The most important one. If I don't succeed at a single thing, if this church falls apart, if my job fires me and I live on a box in the street for the rest of my life, but my kids fully love Jesus, I have succeeded in life. I have accomplished the most important task for which I was placed on this earth, nurturing them toward Jesus.
Now, even as I say that, listen to me. I am not saying, I am not, not, not saying that if your kid does not love Jesus, that it's your fault as a parent. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, the only person you can control is you. You can't control them, you control you. And if you are doing everything in your power to love them well and nurture them toward Christ, you are doing everything you are supposed to do as a parent. They're going to make their own decisions. But you can set them up for success by showing them how much they matter to you and much more importantly, how much they, mer- how much they matter to Jesus. Then finally, Paul admonishes masters. These are the people in this society that literally own other people. And a lot of skeptics will look at passages like this and say, why didn't Paul and why didn't Jesus denounce slavery? How can we respect them as leaders when they condoned, even encouraged, slavery? Like here. But that's not what's happening. Understand, that is not what happened. Paul... Jesus, the church, are doing what you might refer to as a long con. You know what a long con is? It means going undercover for a long time in order to scam somebody rather than coming right immediately out with the trick. Now before you're like, OMG, Pastor Sway just called Jesus a scammer. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm borrowing the term long con to use it in a good way. It is to sow a seed that grows into something slowly. That's what I'm talking about. Do you know what ended up happening in the Greco-Roman world to the institution of slavery? It was outlawed. The entire society was turned completely upside down. Do you know why? If you study your history, you will find that it is because Christianity accomplished that by working slowly over time to change society by changing people's hearts instead of changing the laws. This is an example of that. Masters had control completely over their servants. They could do whatever they wanted to them. Beat them, starve them, rape them, steal from them, mistreat them, disrespect them, whatever. They had total control in the society. And into that speaks Paul. And do you see what Paul tells masters to do? He says, treat your bondservants as fellow bondservants of God. He tells these people to view their servants as equals. He tells their masters to understand that they are servants of God, just as their bondservants are. And as such, they are to stop threatening them, because God is watching and He views both of you at the same level. Again, understand that the people listening to these words would have been like, my servant is the same level as me. We're, we're equals. That's what you're saying. And Paul's like, yes, you are both the same. In Christ, there is no longer Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ. The masters would have been like, oh. And the servants would have been like, 
Oh, that sounds great. Paul is speaking to dementors who suck the lives out of their servants, and he tells them, sow seeds of worthfulness in them. You have the same amount of worth that they do, infinite worth in Jesus. That is what eventually ended up leading to the end of slavery in this culture. It wasn't that the laws got changed. It was that people finally understood that God had created them equally, and so they ought to treat each other as worthful equals. Kind of hard to keep enslaving them when you have that kind of attitude. Paul played the long game. So let's bring this home and apply this to ourselves. Let's look in the mirror and apply this to ourselves. You and I have the opportunity every single day to show other people how much they matter. Paul tells us, whatever situation you're in, wherever you have any kind of power, you are to use it to affirm the worthfulness of others, to serve them, to minister to them, to share with them from your resources, love them sacrificially the way that Jesus loves them. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Parents, nurture the God-given worthfulness in your children. Bosses, managers, employers, supervisors, build up your employees as equals in Christ, showing them how much you serve them because Christ has served you. You understand? Whatever social power you possess has been given to you to invest in other people, not to lord over people. You were called to be a force of good. Remember, there are good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You were called to be a Patronus, not a Dementor. A person who shines the light of Jesus, who embodies his joy, not somebody who sucks the joy out of people. Power must be used to sow worthfulness. But Paul's not done, because he says that those who are in positions of subservience also have the same job. Rather than starting a revolt to, to demand their rights, they too are meant to sow worthfulness in those over them. So this is point number two. Weakness is an opportunity to affirm worthfulness in others rather than protecting its own. Weakness is an opportunity to affirm worthfulness in others rather than protecting its own. What does a weaker party do by instinct? Protect its own worthfulness. Paul says it's actually an opportunity to sow worthfulness in those above you. So here Paul addresses the weaker parties in his culture. Wives, children, and bondservants. And he gives them a difficult, humbling task to sow worthfulness in those who exercise power over them. Now, obviously, this is the exact opposite of what conventional Western wisdom would tell us, right? Our evolved sense of diversity and inclusion would say, fight the power. Don't let them steal your voice. Usurp the authority. Down with the patriarchy. Surprisingly, Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't tell them that. But is it because he wants them to remain under the thumb of unfair power? No. Again, long con. Remember, everything that he is telling the weaker party 
is in the context of everything that we've just established, right? Sowing worthfulness in others, being sacrificial, being other-centered, being a loving servant of God and humanity. So to the wives, he says, ladies, you have a unique opportunity here. You have the opportunity to make your husband be more like Jesus. Wives in the room, let me ask you by a show of hands, how many of you want your husbands to be more like Jesus? Unanimous decision. Every wife wants her husband to be more like Jesus. How many of you want your husbands to be godly and humble and servant-hearted and sacrificial? All of you? Yes. How many of them want you to be like what we just talked about them needing to be in point one? All of you. Interestingly, the way that Paul tells you to do that is to treat them as if they already are. He tells wives to submit to their husbands as they would submit to the Lord, knowing full well their husbands are not the Lord. Why would he tell them to submit to them as they would to the Lord if they are not the Lord? Because doing so is going to powerfully sow the husband's worthfulness in his identity in Jesus, leading him to be the kind of person that God created him to be. The world tells you that the way to fight power is to reach up and pull them down, making yourself greater than it. The Bible tells you that the way is to actually raise that person up to a place where they're supposed to be, above that worthy place of power, showing them who they are in Jesus. Who someone is in Jesus is of a far higher position than whoever the world can make you be. It's far higher. Your worth in Jesus is infinitely more than anything the world can offer you. And so if you are placing a person's worth in, in Jesus, you're actually raising them up but you're also raising yourself to that level as well. You don't try to bring them lower, you bring the both of you higher. That does not mean, it does not mean giving them the right to walk all over you. That is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying your husband has full rights to do whatever he wants to you, so respect his every word. Remember point one. What he literally says is to submit to him in the same way that you would submit to Jesus. And guess what? Jesus doesn't lord his power over you like a tyrant would. So you don't have to submit to Jesus in that way because he doesn't treat you that way. Paul says to treat your husband the, the way that you would treat Christ in order to lead him in a direction that makes him more like Christ. And guys, listen, I cannot tell you how much my wife embodies this. I am, by nature, a very lousy person. The greatest reason that I am anything good today is because of my wife. She makes me better every day. She inspires me. She brings out the best in me. She affirms who I am in Christ and holds me to that higher standard, which sometimes means kicking me in the nuts to do it. She slowly transforms me. And she doesn't do that by being a doormat that I walk all over. She doesn't doing it by bowing and calling me master. I can't even imagine what that would be like. (laughs) 
like you guys know my wife, okay? She is every bit a New Yorker through and through. She is a strong, independent woman. And it is that very strength that makes her so amazing. She says to me all the time, my one job in this life is to make you holy. And if I have to roll your you-know-what over the threshold of the gates of heaven, that's what I'm going to do. And I will fall exhausted into Jesus' arms and say, I got him here, Lord. He's all yours now. She says that to me all the time. She's the strongest person I've ever met. And she raises me up to heaven, affirming in me all that I am supposed to be. She treats me with respect even when, especially when, I don't deserve it. And I'm not nearly where I want to be or need to be yet, but I'm a better husband every day because of her. Rather than being a dementor who drains the life out of me in order to assert herself, she is an adorable little squirrel Patronus, shining light into every moment. And she speaks squirrel, squeak, squiggity, squeak, squickerson. Paul, after making this point, to wives then makes the same point to children. He says to them that they are to honor their parents. This, this word doesn't mean to lay down their personhood and just do everything that they say for the rest of their lives, obeying their every word. He tells them to obey them in the Lord. That means that insofar as they are leading them in, in the Lord, they are to do what their parents say. But ultimately, he tells them that they're to honor their parents. And what that means is that they're to be people who show their parents how worthful they are by following their lead, by trusting them, by obeying and respecting them. Even in adulthood, you can show your parents how worthful they are in Jesus. That doesn't mean that you're doing everything that they tell you to do. You don't have to take their advice or, or their commands as often as they want to give them, but you can show them how worthful they are in Christ. That's what it means to honor them. And finally, the same is true for employees. I think all of us are employees somewhere. In Paul's culture, remember, he's speaking to slaves. If you treat your boss like a worthful person in Jesus, rather than just the person who tells you what to do every day, it is guaranteed to plant gospel seeds. When you are the best employee at your job, when you work the hardest, when you are the most positive person at work, when you are the person who is affirming everyone around you and making the team better, your boss eventually will look at you and say, how do I get the other employees to work like you? And there's your opportunity. Well, boss, actually, I don't work for you. And they'll look at you funny and be like, what do you mean? I work for Jesus. I get the opportunity every day to show you and my coworkers how much you mean to God by the way that I conduct myself. Now, I'm not just making up that conversation out of thin air. I've had that exact conversation with my last two bosses. My previous boss and my current boss are both aware that I come to work unlike anybody else. I'm not just there to clock in. I'm there to be a minister for Jesus. Not because I'm better, 
but because I know who I am in Jesus and I want to show them how much they matter to Jesus as well. And when you do that, people are going to notice. They're going to scratch their heads and be like, what's up with this dude? In our weakness, in our submission, in our service, we can raise up every person around us. And you know what happens when both those who are in power and those who are in service are focused on doing that? All of them become brothers and sisters working together to change the world. They become a family of equals, loving each other as worthful equals. So guys, hear me. You get to show other people how much they matter to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Hopefully, by now, after the month that we've spent here in Ephesians, you're amazed at the ways that God is showing you how much you matter to Him. Wouldn't it be crazy if we didn't pass that along to the people around us? It would go against every gift that God has given us, wouldn't it? If we've been given such a great gift of worthfulness, shouldn't we be bringing other people to that same knowledge? so that they can also experience that same surge of self-worth that we have in Jesus? That's our calling. Don't be a dementor. Don't, don't use other people to make you feel alive. Be a beacon of light that casts out darkness in the people around you. Because their lives depend on it too. Expecto Patronum. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for calling us to a higher standard, for calling us to serve the way that you've served us. God, I pray that you would help every one of us, regardless of the context of relationship that we're talking about. You would help us to have the attitude that we're going to imitate you, we're going to love people like you, we're going to lead and we're going to serve the, the same way that you lead and you serve. And Lord, it's a hard job, it's difficult. It's humbling. God, I pray that you would give us the strength. Lord, I pray for any person who's here or watching or listening who has never come to the place where they have submitted to you as Lord. People who have never given you the, 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 the freedom to lead their lives. God, I pray that you would bring them to a place of surrender. That they might say, this life that you offer is so much better than the one that I have. Forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. God, if there's any people who are like that, I pray that they would reach out to somebody here at the church or, or, or to another brother or sister in Christ who can help walk them through that decision. God, as we sing our, our closing song, I pray that you would help us to examine our own hearts, that, that your Holy Spirit would Convict us in the places that we need conviction. Encourage us in the places that we need encouragement. And that you would bring us to a place of commitment to love others the way that you love us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship.